we continue our year of the cannon by talking about 10 to midnight. We're as excited to talk about this as a naked man with a knife running through the woods. Two kids looking for a new thrill. Steve. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. And Paul. A strong-willed woman who knows what she wants and just how to get it. But this time, the thrill went too far. Their target, Canon Films. The home of high-powered, high-voltage motion picture entertainment. With the screen's biggest spectacles, brightest stars, and boldest lineup of explosive entertainment. We're taking motion picture excitement over the edge and your box office over the top. We're Canon Films and we're Dynamite. It's another installment of the year canon, which if you guys had listened to our like little brief uh, mini episode that we did talking about us, I refer to it as the year of the knockoff. I, you know, I've, I've been up since four o'clock this morning. It, it's getting a little weird. Um, we're still stuck in 2018. Yeah. Um, uh, us has messed us up so much that we're, I just don't even know what's going on. I'm, <laughs> I'm discombobulated. I don't know what saying things. Steve is swearing like a sailor it is, it's been a weird night. So yeah. Uh, the 10 to midnight. This is our third uh, canon film we're talking about. Um, this is one you had seen previously. Yeah. And this is one of the ones that you want to talk about specifically at our year of canon, right? So Yeah, I, yeah. absolutely. Um, so uh, this is one that's also been, I've been circling around for a little bit too because I've had uh, some Charles Bronson run-ins like the past couple years, not with him personally because he would kick my ass. Also, he's dead. Um, but from just, uh, like we, there was an episode of twilight zone that we covered on the other show that I did or do, uh, that was in season three uh, with Charles Bronson. So we talked about him there. There was a, a film we covered from the seventies that he was in called telephone that isn't that great, but it was still fun. So, and also I watched a Western, a couple of Westerns during the year, the Western that had him in it. So I've obviously I've been aware of Bronson and I've seen him in some amazing films, but this is the one that everyone's like, you gotta see 10 to midnight. So yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could not pass up this opportunity. It's my first time watching this film. Yeah, I mean, Ten to Midnight's interesting in that it's part slasher film, part cop film, and then part... All Bronson film. <laughs> well, I was going to say part uh, um, Death Wish in the sense that they're kind of playing off of his... Uh, uh, his character in those films. Is that I, something that you wrote on IMDb? I did, <laughs> I did read that on IMDb. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised at trivia for that. I'd be like, Charles Bronson's known for his iconic mustache and not giving a shit about line readings. Like, right. like what? Okay. Um, so th- there, there's a point here where he, obviously he was in the, 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 the twilight of his career. Uh, and Cannon threw a lot of money at him because, you know, obviously the original Death Wish did well and then they they made Death Wish 2 and that was a surprising hit. So and they kind of locked him up. And we talked about that back when we talked about Electric Boogaloo, that there was two piles of scripts for the Chucks, for Bronson and uh, for Norris. Yeah, which I love. I would love to know what those piles were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I, I just, and this is not going to be the only time talking about uh, Charles Bronson during the year of Canon. Uh, but this, this is a, I'd say a quintessential later Bronson performance. Yeah. I mean, good and bad. Like, Which is weird because like, it feels earlier, at least for me, like growing up in the eighties, having seen Bronson films as a kid, 
uh, like it, realizing that like he was 61 when they made this. Like it, it's certainly later in his career, but for me, it felt very much like oh, this was when I disco- not not when I discovered him, but like there that's was just the a Bronson point where I'm used to yeah, he just he got to he got to a certain point where. He just didn't look like he stopped. He didn't look like he aged anymore. And right. it was like he was in that kind of mode for the Bronson mode for like 20 years. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe like here, we'll we'll do um, a little bit of set, a play setting and then we'll play the trailer and then we'll talk about the film and proper. Uh, the release date for this film was March 3rd, uh, 1983. Uh, number one song. Um don't want to say it because considering everything that's been going on right now, it's Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Oh. Uh, yeah, he was big hit at that time. Well, Whatever happened history. to that guy? Whatever like. happened to that Michael Jackson guy? <laughs> you, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's ugly, but it's history. Yeah, right? Um, still a cool video. I can't help it. I remember watching that as a kid, and it was a cool video. Well, I mean, you know, we're going to mention somebody that's connected to another Michael Jackson connection later. That's that, true, like, yeah. Is You know, uh, so yeah, I mean... You can't help it. It's not like you're condoning. So no, like, no, no. Um, you know, Billy Jean, Jean's not my lover. Uh, so uh, number one film at this time that was not Ten to Midnight was Tootsie, uh, uh-huh. the Dustin Hoffman film. Uh, I thought you were also going to say that this movie was released right before Return of the Jedi to cash in on it. Because uh, <laughs> was it Space Hunter was rela- released you, like the, the week or two before? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, this was trying to cash in on that Return of the Jedi money. Um, so yeah, I'll actually get to that in a second. So the budget for this was 4.5 million. Box office was uh, seven million. So it, it made its money. Made its money. Kinda. Uh, you know, because generally when you factor in everything else that goes into making a movie, this thing maybe broke even, but it still turned a profit at the box office. So in Canon's book, they probably said this thing made 28 million or whatever they'd say. Yeah. Um, and I, four, 4.5 might be inflated. It might've been like they made it for a million. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, 500,000 with the bronze's mustache. Uh, and then uh, another 500, I don't know how that would break down. So, uh, other films that came out around this time, I just think it's worth mentioning, is March 2nd, so or like eight days before, was the film Sahara that Cannon also uh, produced. Was this the same time? Yeah. Uh, oh, so, wow. Um, and that that was the Brooke Shields adventure kind of movie that was trying to be capture some of that Indiana Jones spirit because they had John Reese davies in it as well, if I remember right. So um, um, not that I'm expecting yeah. you to have full Brooke Shields knowledge, but was this before or after Blue Lagoon? After. So, okay. Uh, Menachem Golan had this really good tendency, by good I mean not really, to strike after, like meaning like Blue Lagoon did yeah. all this money, so he's like, oh, you know, Brooke Shields is hot commodity, so we're going to get her in this, and we're going to put a lot of money in this project because Blue Lagoon made money, Sahara's going to make money, and that was literally his thought process. Yeah. So, yeah, he um, would always kind of catch some of these uh, these moments, like uh, like well, like we talked about the Apple and everything. Like he was always trying to find that that big hit or that big thing, and like every so often he'd be right, kind of like by accident with like breaking, yeah. being that thing that that film that uh, you know was ahead of the curve with the breakdancing thing. But with with uh, Brooke Shields and all this, he overpaid and and it, you know he missed missed the mark on that. But that came out like a little over a week before this, uh, March eleventh, the same weekend that this movie came out, ten to midnight. Was a film called Trench Coat. Uh, it was one of those Disney produced adult oriented films, like they made kind of like. When you say adult, adult oriented, I know. No, well, because like, because it's not a kids movie. Okay. It was like you know, like this is the same time frame as Condor Man, right? Okay. So this is uh, an action comedy spy type of film with Margot Kidder and Robert Hayes. So wow. I never heard of it. Probably never want to watch it. Um, you hear the trench coat and adult oriented. Uh, yeah, you're like, my yeah, mind yeah, goes to yeah, a completely you know, different place. Yeah. 
I go, well, I feel like trench coat might have been a better, well, no, it wouldn't have been a good name for this film. The lack of trench coat might have been a better, um, <laughs> Uh, and then uh, March 25th, so this is like two weeks later, but just to give it a kind of point of reference, The Outsiders had come out, or really? it was coming out. So um, interesting landscape of films at the time. Uh, but so box office, like I said, $7 million. Um, this was the 80th highest grossing film of 1983. Uh, so I'll do the top 10, then I'll, I'll mention a couple that were ahead of this. Okay. Just so you'll laugh. This, I did this more for Steve. So top 10, Return of the Jedi, you're right. Um, Terms of Endearment. Flashdance, uh, which is about um, Barry Allen uh, being a stripper, not really. Uh, Trading Places, War Games, uh, Octopussy, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Staying Alive, which is the sequel to Saturday Night Fever that no one talks about anymore, but it was the eighth highest grossing film. It was the uh, eighth? Wow. Because yeah. I felt like that movie was a flop when it came yeah. out, but uh, apparently Mr. I'm wrong. Mr. Mom was number nine with Michael Keaton, Yeah, and number two was Risky Business with Tom Cruise. So... All right, so 80th highest grossing film of 83. Number 79 was Something Wicked This Way Comes, that other Disney, you know. I love Something Wicked This Way Comes. I know you I, do. I've, I have thought about putting it in our October shows for. And now we uh, can talk about like how it did marginally better than Disney. Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, <sighs> and then so number 77 was Strange Brew. Oh no! I love Strange Brew I, as I well. Love, I as do I, and I, that's something we're going to talk about on the show eventually. People, you should have been seeing Strange Brew in '83 and not uh, Staying Alive. <laughs> I was going to say, not, and not Ten to Midnight, not the film we're going to talk about for a while here. So, all right, so that's your kind of time and place. Uh, we'll get into cast and crew and um, and kind of the genesis of this film because there's there's obviously a story, right? So uh, let's let's get to the trailer. Only ten minutes into our discussion, as opposed to the normal forty forty five. So, all right, you're going to hear this. This trailer almost gives away the entire film. So, yeah, I got spoilers, I guess. A sensational crime. An airtight alibi. We can't lay a finger on this guy. And a chain of evidence. Bring him in. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer, and he's running out of time. Go ahead, take me in. You can't punish me. When the guilty go free, I was to be everybody. The system is the crime. I want a killer, and what I want comes first. Well, how come I've never heard him mention a daughter? It seldom crosses his mind that he has one. He's one angry man with someone to protect. Along with your father. Argue He can make a difference. You like hurting girls? I won't answer that. Girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? <laughs> I won't listen to your filth. <laughs> Look at him. Gotta remind you about evidence obtained under duress. It's inadmissible, Leo. We got no evidence and we can't hold this kid. He's our man, Captain. I'm gonna get him. Found some blood. He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes and he knows it. Hey, How do you plead, Warren? Guilty or not guilty? <laughs> not guilty. The last thing I want to do is get involved with a cop. Well, I don't blame you. Leo, I went back to the lab and I talked to the technician. And I asked him if you... Why didn't you ask me? Isn't that true, Lieutenant? You planted the evidence. You know why. We could nail them sooner or later. After counting how many more dead. He had to be stopped. After all the evidence is in, he'll reach his own verdict and execute the sentence by the deadline. When there is no justice, this man is the law. 10 
to midnight. Charles Bronson, Lisa Eilbacher, and Andrew Stevens in a Golong Globus production of a J. Lee Thompson film. Ten to midnight. I would like to point out that Charles Bronson's not really angry in the movie. Like I, they make a big point of it. Like, yeah, he's upset. <laughs> he picked up a quiche instead of a slice of pie. He is an angry man. Like, sure, he, he's an angry cop, but no more so than normal. I would say. I, yeah, I just you know, like hardened by life, maybe you know, yeah. he, he is a uh, a jaded, apathetic cop. <laughs> um, I guess that doesn't sound as good in a trailer. <laughs> yeah, that trailer. Uh, you know, if you put it, if you change the order of some of the stuff. That's your movie, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I, you know, but so, well, let, let's, let, should we talk about the name 10 to midnight or do we want to save like where that came from? Uh, just, I, I mean, mean, I don't think it spoils the movie. It doesn't I spoil mean, the movie at all. It's just, I guess so, it also is 37 years old at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so, um, the, the trailer is like, he has a deadline and then like the posters are all like, they talk about this, like, you know, the ticking clock or something. And it's like, and the title of the film is 10 to midnight. The title means nothing. Yeah. Like, it literally means nothing. So, Ten to Midnight is never referenced in the movie, or even a chronological, like, time clock ticking down. So, did you read the story of where the name came from? Yeah. Okay. So, I, I'll tell people that aren't Steve. Uh, so, Ten to Midnight uses a screenplay named Bloody Sunday. So, according to producer Poncho Conner, that's a great name, Conner uh, and Bronson had purchased the film rights to a novel called The Evil That Men Do, which, if you guys notice, that's the film he makes after this one. Um, and so Canon films was already committed to Bronson's next project, but they didn't want to pay for the rights for the evil that men do, but they wanted to make the next Bronson film. So, uh, Menachem and, uh, one of his other, uh, producers and Conor, they were at the Cannes film festival. Maybe it's Connor. I mean, I'm saying that wrong. And so they were promoting his new project. And so they kind of brainstormed up this thing on the spot and called it 10 to midnight. It was trying to sell it to producers saying it's an action film. There's revenge. There's Charles Bronson. He may or may not be a golem. That's not true. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's a call back to the documentary of there. The Charles Bronson is the Gollum. He's an angry cop. That's not, God, I want that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, so they sold the, like basically sold these, the, these financers on this film and they came back to the States and were like, we don't have a movie. And then someone's like, what about the script called bloody Sunday? And so they, they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. We'll just call that 10 to midnight. Yeah. Like, so they got backed into a wall because they sold they sold the idea. It's so have... weird. I feel like a title is much easier to change than the concept. Like, well, you, you know, from what we know about Menachem Golan, like that wants something he likes, yeah. it's going to happen one way or another. And you know, to be honest, the the, the name Ten to Midnight's a cool name. It's a yeah, cool oh, name yeah, for it's a, a film. Cool name. Um, it doesn't have any bearing on this film whatsoever. Like, uh, I mean, it is just the title of a film. And if I would have said, Hey, if someone said, Hey Paul, does this title sound like a Charles Bronson film? Like, absolutely. It sounds like a Charles Bronson film. So yeah. Um, I, I don't know if bloody Sunday would fit better either. I, you know, yeah, I mean, like, Bloody Sunday is definitely not as good a title as Ten to Midnight. What if they I'll called it that. Naked Fury? What if they called it that? I Naked mean, Naked Rage. You know, yeah, like, uh, you know, uh, I I got nothing now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they could have called it, uh, yeah, um, 
naked guy kills people. With Charles the naked Bronson gun. In the movie. Oh wait, that's a different thing. So, all right, um, yeah. So, Ten to Midnight, which doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it was directed by J. Lee Thompson. Uh, so he was actually nominated for an Oscar as Best Director for 1961's The Guns of Navarone. So he stepped in and actually finished that film, and people were like, oh, then they got a claim or whatever. So you have an Oscar-nominated director directing this film. Uh, also directed the original Cape Fear. Uh, was supposed to direct Planet of the Apes, but couldn't, um, I think, because uh, there's another film that was running over uh, over budget, and he had to stay with it. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was allergic to apes. He was allergic to apes. Uh, he was allergic to... Um, uh, 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 Shoot, uh, the actor um, that's Roddy that. McDowell, not Roddy McDowell, the other the other one, Charlton Heston. Yeah, Charlton. He's allergic to Charlton Heston, you know, because uh, that guy looked like he just didn't take a shower and that, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but he ended up directing um, uh, Battle of the Planet of the Apes and Conquest. Uh, sorry, Battle for the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. So he did the two sequels, two of the sequels. Um, he also did Happy Birthday to Me, which I have. You, I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen that. That's one of the few ones that, like, I. I wish i loved it and i just it doesn't work for me i i'm pretty sure i saw it as a kid but i don't remember anything about it and then uh so ten to minute was his first t- fourth time working with bronson uh and he would go on to do a few more with bronson um and then he also is will direct in the future from this point uh king solomon's minds with another canon film and firewalker so he also got to direct chuck norris chuck norris yeah, so I'm really surprised they didn't put the two checks together in a movie. <laughs> Do you think their egos could handle that for each other? Honestly, because Bronson was kind of not a control freak, but like if he didn't like you, he didn't do anything, you know. So I think he got along with Jay Lee Thompson enough, yeah. you know. So I mean, it makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of actors if they like a particular director, will continue to work with them. But uh, I just think from a marketing standpoint, they weren't like, let's make a movie with the two chucks. Yeah. <laughs> Spin kick, spin kick, and, and, and squint. That's 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 their names. But uh, yeah. So, but also, J. Lee Thompson was a very efficient director. He didn't do many takes, and I think Bronson preferred that. So he's just like, "We done? All right, moving on." You know, like you know, you put down the 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 dick machine. I'll put it down. Like. <laughs> Yes, the we'll dick get... machine is going to come up later. Yes. That should have been the name of the movie. <laughs> Charles machine. Bronson in Dick Machine. Um, that sounds like it's a guy, maybe. Uh, so, all right. <laughs> hey, ladies, check it out. It's the Dick Machine. Yeah. Um, so this was written by uh, William Roberts that like we talked about, uh, and J. Lee Thompson. I'm sure he touched up the script later. But Roberts uh, did an early draft. That I, this is kind of backwards in order. So he did one of the earlier drafts for Major Pain. The, 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 uh, the, the Damon Wayans the, film? Yes. Okay. Uh, he did uh, the screenplay for Red Sun, which is another Bronson film that's a mixture of Western and martial arts. Uh, I've not seen, but I, I should get to it. Sounds awesome. And uh, he also did the screenplay for the for the original Magnificent Seven. Like so, he because the seven, Magnificent Seven is based off the Seven Samurai, but he did the screenplay for the Magnificent Seven, which also has Charles Bronson in it. So uh, and music, I just want to mention, it was by Robert O. Ragland. Uh, I was like, that name sounds familiar to me. He did the score for Abby and Grizzly. Oh, okay. So there's your there's your call back to your the knockoff. So um, yeah, cast Charles Bronson. I, I wrote down Charles Bronson as Charles Bronson. I'm sure he has a name, but it's always going to be Charles it's Bronson. Kessler, right? His last name's Kessler, yeah. Uh, and then so we have Lisa Eilbacher as Laurie Kessler, the daughter. Uh, you had mentioned to me before we started recording, she was in an 80s episode of The Twilight Zone, so I want to mention that. Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, um, that's that's why I always think of her. She's uh, Axel's friend in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, uh, in 
Beverly Hills Cop. So. And she was in Leviathan. Pretty sure she's the one who goes with Daniel Stern and gets the the vodka from him that he was hiding that they stole off of the Russian ship. I, I that don't has honestly the, know how long it's been since I've seen Leviathan. I don't so. know why I remember that other than Daniel Stern is in it early and he uh, doesn't make it long. Neither does she. So pretty sure that they're the people that end up turning into the weird monster stuff first. Okay. Uh, spoiler, I guess. Spoiler for Leviathan. Yeah, I, I like Leviathan. Like I, I listen just, to this podcast about ten to midnight. They spoil Leviathan. Uh, yeah, right. And it's like next is going to ruin Deep Star Six. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and so we got um we got Gene Davis as Warren Stacy, aka Naked Man. I just like to point out, not Gina Davis. No, Gene, Gene Davis. Davis. Um, I didn't really see anything else that he did that it was. He was in another Bronson film later on, which. Oh. Uh, uh, the title escapes me, so I don't know when I brought it up. But uh, <laughs> yes, he's he's in another Bronson film. Uh, so then we have uh, Jeffrey Lewis. Actually, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to mention. Uh, we'll we'll talk about Jeffrey Lewis because he's great. But Andrew Stevens was Paul McCann, uh, McCann, the the partner, the younger partner mm-hmm. cop in the film um, that everybody kept shitting on because he was supposed to be like this young cop, but it's like he looked. I don't know. He didn't look like a young rookie to me. He just like he's straight out of the. Like, uh, well, there, there's, a, that, yeah. there's that ABC series one right now, Nathan Fillion called The Rookie, where yeah. he plays like a 40-year-old rookie cop. It's like, I feel like they're the same age. age. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he he um, has been acting you know, here and there. Like he's, he's, he's always been working, but he has a ton of producing credits. Mm-hmm. And I wrote my notes originally, seems to have made his money producing. And then I wrote the stuff he produced, 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Boondock Saints, which eventually turned a lot of money. Yeah. And Battlefield Earth. So then I wrote, well, maybe he didn't make his money doing that. <laughs> but he produces a lot of stuff. So Yeah, I mean I guess maybe as producer credit, maybe he made money. Yeah. And the movies didn't, but Yeah. Three mile three thousand miles of Graceland did not age well. Like um it wasn't I've that great to begin it. with, but it didn't age well. Uh, you got battling Elvi in that. So you got uh was it Kevin Costner and um Oh, is it Kurt Russell? Is it? Yeah, they're they're um, Elvis impersonators that are also like bank robbers. Yeah, yeah. I've not seen it. Uh, Costner's the evil Elvis. So, uh, and then um, yeah. Anyway, not a good movie. Jeffrey Lewis as Dave Dante, the 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 scuzzy lawyer that actually kind of has a point in yeah. the film. Uh, I love Jeffrey Lewis. Like he's a very recognizable like character actor. Uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about, look him up. You'll be like, I've seen this guy in everything because he's been in everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I tend to think of him. Uh, well, I mean, he's in a lot of things. I don't know why, because it's a more recent credit. But I always think of him in The Devil's Rejects. Um, he plays uh, one of the members of Banjo and Sullivan in uh, Devil's Rejects. So uh, that's that's what I always, for whatever reason, go towards. Um, but yeah, excuse me, he's in like everything. Yeah, he was in the original Salem's Lot TV miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, High Plains Drifter, he has a, a small but important role in that. Um, but yeah, the Jeffrey Lewis and everything. He passed away just like a couple years ago. But he, Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. I feel like in the last two years. Yeah. And then we have Wilford Brimley, who's still with us, I yeah. believe, uh, as Captain Malin. Talking uh, about diabetes. And uh, and if, you know, if you just give him, uh, give him what he wants and let him out of the shed, he'll be okay. You know, uh, this is this is around the time of the thing. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. that's a thing reference, yeah. folks. Uh, and uh, just, he's just Wilford Brimley. Like he's not in the movie much, but it's like it's just, I just I love seeing him. So I'm like, yeah, cool, Wilford Brimley. It's it's one of the most Brimleyest Wilford Brimley. <laughs> did you did you see the John Goodman Saturday Night Live when he uh, was playing Wilford Brimley? No. And it was doing like the diabetes commercial where it's him on the horse. And he, he talks about he's like, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna get off of this horse into 
a much smaller horse, <laughs> and then onto an oversized dog, <laughs> <laughs> and then get on the ground. <laughs> like, <laughs> something about that was great. Oh, right. Well, it's weird because, like, I think about like uh, Cocoon because he's in the two Cocoon movies, and that's like '85, I think. Yeah, and like you realize, well, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. he's still kicking. Yeah, so. he's, yeah, you know, he's he's managed his diabetes, so yeah. good, good for him. Like, better than a lot of people, right? Like, yeah. so he's still got both his feet. <laughs> I mean, that we know of. Yeah. They, those boots could be empty. That's why he's always on a horse. We don't know. <laughs> I'm going to hell. Yeah, me too. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm the one making the jokes. Um, but yeah, no, I just I love Wolford Brimley, and it's like you, you like with especially this day and age when you hear like all these stories coming out. It's like you've never heard anything about Wolford Brimley, like right. so. Uh, yeah, just good guy. Like, <laughs> He's going to die, and we're going to hear, like, he was such a womanizer. Yeah. Oh, my God. He nailed yeah. everyone in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Charles Bronson was scared of him. <laughs> like, what? No. So uh, there was an, uh, a few other uh, female actors in this film, and I I know you were going to reference one um, in particular, and I'm, I'm going to mention another one. Uh, okay. Ola Ray, who plays Ola in the film. Uh, she's not in the movie much, but... Uh, she's known, um, I guess her biggest claim to fame is that she was the girlfriend of Michael Jackson's character in the thriller video. Mm-hmm. So she's the one sitting in the theater with them, you know, at the start of the film. And then I think she's in the mini movie wearing like the varsity jacket. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, iconic, right? Yeah. A uh, beautiful girl. Um, she was apparently also, I think a playboy bunny at one point. And uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, um and she, like a lot of her, like all, all her IMDb is a lot of small roles. Like I don't think she ever got to being a like lead. Well, I, I think she also stepped away because she uh, had kids. So okay. I think like this was like she had her big spike and then stepped away for a while. She's still working. And actually, if you're in the Cleveland area, um, uh, the first full weekend of April. So not this weekend, but the next weekend, she's going to be at the Cinema Wasteland Convention in Strongsville, Ohio. Uh, talking about various roles, and they're showing 10 to Midnight there. So had we not covered it for the show, I'm sure I would have seen it there for the first time. But now that I've seen this, I kind of want to go and be like... I kind of want to watch it with an audience, though. Right? That would be fun. But it just kind of this lines up like last year. We watched Abby, and then there was yeah. cast members from, from that there. So it'll be fun to actually meet the person and be like, I enjoyed the movie you're in. You know, how was it? How, how did it feel always being around a very naked um, uh, Gene Davis the entire time because you know he had to be naked there's there's no hiding some of that they did a good job of artfully hiding the penis all the time <laughs> but he had to be naked on set for a lot of that well i i have some thoughts on that before uh, but <laughs> you i have some mention- thoughts on gene davis's hidden penis <laughs> but I'll, I'll go into uh just the other like notable cast member is kelly preston who for those of you who don't know who kelly preston is she's a uh, mrs john travolta and she's in a ton of movies and uh I believe this is her first role. So um, I was just kind of, I didn't realize it was her until I was looking at the credits for the film. I'm like, oh my God. Um, but yeah, Kelly Preston's in a ton of movies. Um, the name sounds familiar to me, and I don't like, I just watched this, but I couldn't tell yeah. you which one it was. And I believe she's uh, John Travolta's beard. I mean, wife. Um, <laughs> oh, hot take. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, getting back to Gene Davis's penis. Um, <laughs> Oh, jeez. No, uh, I, yeah. I, I do say that, like, for this time, um, particularly, uh, I admire the fact that they were like, yeah, we're going to go with a naked male killer. And, like, yes, well, the, it's not visible 
uh, <laughs> like you see a lot of him, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in an era where a lot of these movies were just all about like showing naked women, it was an interesting take. Um, and I I credit the movie for being like, you know, we're gonna have an all male, er, an all male, an all need <laughs> male as the killer. Um, and I'm sure that they probably hire they they hit it more for probably rating reasons than they did uh, art reasons, if you will. Yeah. Um, but because uh, they probably would have gotten him an X at that yeah. point. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I just I think that that's really cool that they did that because I've never been I've never understood the whole like uh, you know because like on Game of Thrones whenever like there's a naked guy you know uh, people seem to overreact and like. There's tons of naked women. Like, why wouldn't yeah. it make sense that there's a naked male in this movie as well? Uh, and it, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I applaud the film for, for for doing that and doing something different, particularly with a slasher. Um, so yeah, again, like I said, maybe not for artful reasons, probably for more rating reasons. But um, I, I thought that that was a cool aspect of the film, and you know, I'm glad to see that they took that chance because I don't know that a lot of films at this time would have. Oh, I, so this film feels relatively tame. Like, so this is my first time watching this, right? Yeah. So I got I got to put myself in the headspace. This was a film that was released theatrically in '83. You know, um, we there still wasn't the PG thirteen rating at that point that was about to come. Not that this movie be PG thirteen, but no. So, it, so it was either G, PG, or R, or like X. You know, so which is always weird to me because like we you mentioned Planet of the Apes and the original Planet of the Apes is G rated, but like you see Charlton Heston's bare ass, like. I, I, that deserves a, a firm X rating <laughs> for me. No, I was just like I was surprised. I'm like, wow, this wasn't PG. Like, I thought that was odd. That like, well, probably it's because the context wasn't sexual. Like, yeah. so that's where it, there's there's the documentary called "This Film Is Not Yet Rated." Uh, that kind of goes into people asking questions about why do certain films get one rating and versus the other. And there's a lot of politics that go involved, get involved because they'll show side by side examples of basically the same thing, but one is male oriented versus female oriented. It's like one always gets the R, you know? So, yeah. um, so I think then before the ratings are what they are now, there was probably more of like how they view things like in Europe where like nudity and sexuality is not rated as strongly as violence. So it's probably that probably makes more sense because I mean even Jaws was PG you yeah. know when it first came out technically so uh, but yeah anyway uh, ten to minutes an R straight up all all the way through um, I've taken us off and I don't no understand. no no I mean that's again that's what we do here but uh, so this, this first time watching this film so like it it feels tame in the sense that like uh, you know there is there is some choice language uh, there's some you know weird. Like you know, sexual things going on, but it's nothing that I haven't seen more graphic and more pronounced in other films. I just got to imagine myself if I was just going to go like I'm going to go see this Charles Bronson thriller in the theater and be like, whoa, there is a substantial amount more nudity and uh, discussion about things than I was expecting. And this film kind of had some backlash being very exploitive at the time and very, yeah. very, um, oh, what seedy, you know, kind of. Well, I mean, you know, you mentioned the dick machine and we'll just, we'll go to that right away. Like there's a, a sex toy feature in the movie that is, it looks like a combination of a drill and, or a blow dryer with a mouth on it. With the mouth on it. Uh, and it's, and, and I'm quoting Charles Bronson's line here in the movie, like it's it's used for jacking off, um, which she says with extreme malice <laughs> in an interrogation room, and he's like shoving this thing in the face 
of this would-be killer. <laughs> At which I point out, I, I pointed out to you today that I'm like, he really should be wearing gloves in this scene. Yeah, and it never occurred to me. And it's like, oh, dear Lord. A, yeah. he's handling evidence. B, he's handling someone else's sex. He's toy. handling someone else's dick machine. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but there's the bit where he's in he's in the the killer's bathroom, like looking around because they, they suspect him, and he picks this thing up in the bathroom and looks at it, and it reminds me a little bit of like was it the Naked Gun the second one where they go in the sex shop, oh, and they're yeah. they're interrogating that lady, and then he's like, uh, and she's like, is this some kind of bust? And he was like, you know, uh, um, he's like, well, it's impressive, but no, like whatever, he like because <laughs> she's busty. But then there's the bit where George Kennedy picks up like it looks like a leaf blower. <laughs> With like a dildo attached to it, and it's just revving this thing up, and it just just makes this loud noise and it just shakes all over the place. So he just sets it right back down, like that's what I thought of. Uh, so um, I'm sorry, I just I was going to George Kennedy in the Naked Gun movies. I love George Kennedy in those movies. But yeah, go on. Oh, it's like I heard Martha's pregnant again. Yeah, and if I catch the guy that did it, like, you know, uh, whatever her his wife's name was in the movie. But uh, so yeah, I guess we should just back up a little bit. So this film. It starts off a little weird with uh, it's it's just uh, Bronson sitting at like you know his desk typing, uh, which I want to point out he's a, a hunt and peck typer. Did you notice that? Yeah. Like he's typing like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Like he's just typing out you know one letter Except at a time. He's got all of his fingernails, <laughs> all his fingernails and not turning yeah. into a uh... a Brundle Bronson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so and he's talking to a reporter about something. And then he's talking about like he's like I got to get the killer, and I'm like. And it cuts to like the the credits, and I'm like, oh well, that has to be important to the story. It's not. Not. It's not. It's like, what was that all about? I think it's just to establish Bronson's a cop. Yeah, and he, you know, he's not going to talk to the media. He's going to do things his way. Yeah. But then, like the first part of the movie actually deals more with the killer, uh, uh, Warren Stacy, which I will give this movie credit. I thought this was going to be more of like a whodunit like type of like detective movie. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> this one's straight up more like you, you. It's. It does take a turn, and I want to get to that a little bit later because I was like, "Well, that's a that kind of takes all the tension out of the movie. You already know who's doing it and how he's doing it. Yeah. So what's the point? Eventually, Bronson's going to get him, you know. Yeah. Um. But no, this guy, he uh, he dresses up like in a members only jacket and ha- and he's like you know getting himself all ready to go out for the night or whatever. Which was the style at the time. It was the style at the time, and I wrote um members only jacket and members only switchblade. That's whatever because <laughs> he has a butterfly knife. Switchblade type. It wasn't no, it was a butterfly knife. Um that he was really good with, like, and he's getting ready to go out. And you see him fixating on a woman in a van. It's getting into a van. And I didn't know if it was him remembering a time when she spilled coffee on him, or it was him imagining like a slight. To, I, I took it as him remembering. Okay. Yeah. Because I thought he was building the story he's had about like, you know, talking to her, kind of flirting with her. And then in his mind, he sees her rejecting him immediately. So he fixates on her. But then you find out that they kind of work together. For a movie that I enjoyed, I think you're giving it far too much credit that they're like <laughs> building that it, it was a slight that he built up in his head. I took it as just a memory. <laughs> Do you like how I give this film a lot of credit, but then just go back to our <laughs> previous discussion about us where I'm like, I don't know if this makes sense. And I'm like, hey, you think the naked killer in the Bronson film, this is what was going on. I, I'm broken. Like, <laughs> uh, So, yeah, anyway, so like it, it, the movie isn't entirely clear what's going on with this other than he sees this woman get in this van. But then it does a flash forward of her making love to the guy that's in the van with her. And it's like, I'm like, is he now thinking about that's what's going to happen? Like, right. it was this weird kind of edit that was going on. But so you have him go to the movie theater, um, kind of harass the girls in front of him. They kind of blow him off. He goes to the ticket teller. He's like, hey. 
what's her name? And that's the guitar is like, oh, her name's so-and-so. It's like, yeah. okay. You know, so. Back in the old days, everybody knew everybody's name. At the I guess so. Uh, but so he buys a ticket to the same movie they're going to, which is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. Uh, um, and so he goes and kind of like hits on her, kind of makes a scene. Uh, and then she blows him off and then he waits for the movie to start and he goes into the men's restroom and uh, like exits out the window. Uh, and then you see him in the woods naked. Well, he drives his car to the woods, knows where this van is at this lake. I don't know how he figured that out. Uh, and then he's now naked outside the van looking at this pe- these people making love. And then he attacks the dude and stabs him like horribly yeah. and then chases the girl and then kills her too. And then he, so- he gets back and gets back into the theater in his clothes and is there for the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so it, it's funny. Um, I, 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 uh, I thought it was interesting that, like, we get to see at least what his process is in the sense that, like, we see him, he flushes the rubber gloves that he was wearing when he killed her down the toilet. In we the theater. See, yeah, yeah, in the theater. We see kind of his, like, the way he's built an alibi by just being a jerk to the, the women. Um, and he makes sure that they see him going into the movie and he makes sure that they see him going out. Yeah, no, that, that's all, that's all kind of smart. I'll give it that. That's all kind of smart. I will say though, there's part of me that wants to say like, oh, well, there's no way that that would in reality work out in the sense of like being an alibi. But, um, I've recently and I'm, I'm going real life here for a second dug into the serial podcast and the documentary on oh so he'd be like i went to the theater recently ducked out <laughs> murdered had, someone had an entire back. pancake breakfast and came back and no one was the wiser yeah. you know like no I, I i've been uh digging into the hbo documentary on uh, uh the, case, the case against anon yeah and then uh also listening to the podcast serial and just kind of finding out like all the details of that case and part of the police case is that like they have him like getting out of school, killing uh, uh, Hay, who is his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend at the time, and then being picked up within 20 minutes of it all happening. Yeah. Which is a, a extremely tight timeline. So like there's part of me that's like, well, I guess Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kids, it's not like it's a short movie. Like, I guess. I looked up the time on that, by the way, because I wrote my notes. How long is Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid? <laughs> it's one hour and 53 minutes. So okay. it is two hours, but I I don't know in relative distance where this lake is versus this town. Who knows? But the lake is right behind the movie theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, it all just seems a little suspect to me because I think this is like in New York, isn't it? Like where this takes place. I don't know that we're given a location, are uh, we? Well, the, it's it's a, a it's it's clearly a suburban city. It's yeah, not like it's because like the, towards the end when he's like going to the like the the seedier sides of town, yeah. I just, it made me feel like New York at that time. But I'm probably wrong. Well, no, it, it might even be California. I, it I has also, to be California. Probably. I feel like a lot of times in movies, they uh, particularly this this time frame, they used a lot of locations for the same thing and just called them different cities. That's fair, but yeah. So I don't understand how the time works, but if I could forgive that. The notion of this time where a killer is like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, be completely naked, even though it has a double thing of like, this is his way of getting off. And uh, I'll I'll use what Bronson says about it in a second, but it's his way of kind of making sure that there's no evidence Mm -hmm. like to be, to pin him to the murders is an interesting idea. Granted that couldn't happen now because like this, actually this film came out two years before the first police uh, cases that were using DNA. So, this is still one of those like you know perfect crime scenarios that people yeah. thought could happen, 
you know. Um, but then I like that uh, when they examine the body with the coroner and um, someone asks the coroner, like, well, was there was this person raped? And he's like, well, no. And then Bronson's like, of course not. His, his knife is his penis. Like, yeah. whatever he says, I was like, I cringe so, at that moment. So, matter of fact, it's just like, yeah. It's like, you've thought about this, haven't you? Like, <laughs> well, it also, like, there's so much, particularly uh, film theory about horror films. And it's like, it's that, that easy go to of like, oh, well, clearly, you know, the knife is a phallic symbol and it's always about, you know, men wanting to kill women that they can't have or. You know, it, it's sublimating a, a sexual desire. So uh, I cringe at that moment, but I will congratulate the coroner for not being a coroner in an 80s movie, not eating a sandwich while he's examining someone. So. Yeah, just like a full on deli sandwich with mustard <laughs> dripping on the body, smoking a cigarette and being like, you know, well, because we've making a point earlier whenever um, uh, Charles Bronson's character meets uh, the world's oldest rookie because uh, he finds some gum at the crime scene. And he's like, hey, he's like, oh, I was going, I meant to throw that away uh, someplace else. And it's like, you know, for someone like later on in the movie, you kind of get this idea that he's like bright and kind of ahead of the curve with a lot of stuff. Yeah. You would know not to throw gum in the middle of a crime scene, right? Like I, sure. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so this movie, like I, so it goes back and forth with, with Bronson's character, you know, finding the dead body and then kind of doing some detective work and it all kind of adds up. Uh, and then you find out that uh, he knew one of the victims because it was a daughter of, of a family he knew. And yeah. and so and he's telling the like the rookie, he's not a rookie, but he's like, you know, one of the things you don't want to do is get emotional in these cases. And then he immediately goes in and talks to his family and gets emotional. Yeah. Well, you don't seem to get emotional. It's implied that it was, you know. Bronson doesn't get emotional on film. No. We just imply that he's emotional. Yeah. So he's like, so I don't know if that's supposed to be setting up that he's kind of breaking his own rules. At the start, or yeah, if it's just, yeah, I think it was that like this has got personal stakes for him suddenly. Yeah, I think more of what they were trying to set up. So then they go to the the um, the funeral, and that's where he uh, sees his daughter there, and so then you get that whole thing uh, that he wasn't always the best dad. Surprise. Yeah, um, and I wrote my notes here. Uh, she's a Braun daughter, not a Braun son. That's why he's probably not uh, <laughs> not interested in her all that much, but. Um, you know, she seems self-confident, kind of sarcastic, like he is kind of, you know, kind of dismissive of his young, uh, you know, cop uh, partner, but also you get the idea. It's like, they're, they're kind of flirting, you know, yeah. like from the get go, but then she sees, um, uh, our, our naked killer man who's wearing clothes at the funeral. That'd be weird. It'd be like, I don't know who's that naked guy <laughs> off in the distance. And she kind of recognizes him and throws him off because he's, yeah. you know, and so then it becomes this big cat and mouse game of like they're getting closer to his identity and he's trying to like, you know, get rid of evidence for that. Right. So that, that was interesting, but that felt kind of all by the books, except for him, uh, Bronson finding the Dick machine and then confronting yeah. him about it. And also there's this all the thing too, where they find out that this one girl's keeping this really detailed diary of all her sexual partners and all the times that she gets weird phone calls. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too is, is that uh, there is a, a moment uh, in the film that flashes to an awkward moment that he has with her. Uh, the killer has with the first victim, like in the copy room. Uh, yeah. Like a total like sexual harassment case, which I guess in the eighties was just not a thing. So, but like I'm, I'm watching it. I'm like, I really think she probably should have gone to HR at that point. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it is interesting in that they, they, 
set up, you know, that first kill. Uh, we meet, you know, uh, the rookie cop. We, we meet Bronson's daughter. Um, and then we're immediately into the chase for the diary, which then also turns into a kill. Yeah. Uh, I just want to point out that whenever he's in the, in the apartment uh, of the the friend who, like, because he killed the girl and she had a roommate, right? Yes. So he's in that apartment trying to find this diary. Um, <laughs> I just like to note that when she comes home, he hides in the closet. Did you see? There's twin beds in that room. So is that where they both slept? Like, that seems confusing <laughs> to me. I didn't notice that detail. Yeah, it was weird. It's like, oh, cool. Two twin beds. I guess you guys are just best friends in this area to share a bedroom. Uh, but then did you notice that she goes in the kitchen to make food and uh, she puts the egg on and then puts the bread and, you know, the toaster. And then, like, he comes in and kills her and then the toast pops out. Like, I, I wrote, uh, she's toast. Like, cause like, uh, um, yeah, but I, then, I believe, uh, Quentin Tarantino homage that later on in Pulp Fiction. I'm just, yeah. that up. um, but then, you know, so, but I like that he was like hiding in the closet cause he's just trying to get this diary and he, the, the drawer's not opening. And then she comes home and, you know, she's in the, you know, in her neg- like negligee cooking breakfast, but Hey, I've, I've made food probably wearing less. I don't know. Um, probably, uh, not that anybody cares or wants to see, but then he's like, Oh, that's, that's a problem. Then he just gets naked again and just goes yeah. in the kitchen and just stabs her. It's like, well, I mean, I, I also think that, you know, maybe it is a way to kind of avoid like leaving evidence, but it's also like, I feel like, um, it's whenever you're good at something and you don't want to break the routine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Wearing like, my lucky socks today. Yeah. Cause, uh, we won the last five games in these. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. Anyway, so like, he tries to find the diary, like, and it's not there because Bronson already has, and he's already kind of on this guy's uh, trail. You might say Bronson's one step ahead. One step ahead. The clock is ticking, uh, and that's when they confront him in this guy's apartment. There's also this whole other thing too that when he calls people to harass them, he uh, takes on this horrible, horrible <laughs> Spanish accent. <laughs> and um, there, there's the whole thing where someone's like, "What do you sound like? Oh, he's Mexican or something?" I'm like, "Really? That's what you're gonna say?" <laughs> Um, but then they, you know, the, the, the younger partner cop tricks him into reading, uh, 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 was a bullfighting poster that he has on the wall. And he's like, Oh, you speak Spanish. It's like, yep. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would say his voice being, uh, when he calls people and harasses them, his voice is better than, um, the evil voice that's used in New Year's evil. Uh, so I should probably post this side by side cause it's, <laughs> this is at least is better. But yeah, th- so who this did the worst. Uh... Who did the worst voice? Um, so it becomes this thing too, where um, the the guy, um, naked guy, uh, uh, Gene Davis, yeah, uh, Warren Stacy, also starts kind of focusing on Bronson's daughter and is like calling her and being weird and and all this stuff. And so they haven't caught, they haven't gotten the evidence to catch him yet. Um, but then because. Uh, Bronson and his partner suspect this guy's doing this and they suspect that, you know, he might be targeting, you know, somebody else that, that the people know. I forget exactly how that happens. Bronson goes to visit. Actually, you know what? I'm sorry. She figures out that she knows this guy because of a photo that she had and she's trying to tell her dad at the police station. He doesn't want to go talk to her because he's a bad dad. Yeah. But then he, he's like, oh, this is actually pertinent evidence. I should probably go talk to her. So he goes to pretend to be like, oh, I care about you. You're my daughter. And he goes to the hospital cafeteria because she's a nursing school. Yes. Uh, that's my favorite part where he's just grabbing stuff on the line and, and she's like, you, you grabbed a quiche. He was like, Oh, I thought it was a pie. 
And I just like Bronson just being disappointed. Then he goes back through the line again and grabs like, I don't know, what is that, like a rack of ribs or whatever he's about to eat? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I will say also, uh, you know, I don't know how many roommates are living with her at this time. But I was, like, at first I was confused because I didn't know that she was in nursing school. And I'm yeah. like, I was like, oh, she has like four roommates. And they all live in the same room. And there's four beds and a couch. <laughs> Like it was almost like, well, I mean, if they're all trying to save money, I guess that makes sense. But it's like, what is up with the bed placements in these films? Like, so it was weird. Yeah, it was weird. But then I found out like, oh, they're in nursing school. It's a dorm kind of thing. I'm like, oh, that's, I guess that's more acceptable, but it's like still weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, it helps set up like the final bit, I guess a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like if I was making like a really shitty apartment in the Sims, I'd be like, I don't know, beds. (laughs) Just like. (laughs) What does a bedroom look like? I don't know. I don't know. Four beds and a couch? (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, so this becomes a whole thing, too, where Bronson knows this guy did it, and he interrogates him, brings in the dick machine, yells at him, and like he doesn't have enough evidence. And and also because he tries to physically threaten him, they're like, you can't do that. We can't put him away. And so he's trying to find ways to bring this guy back in to hold him so they can go investigate further. And none of that's going to work. So this is where the movie takes the turn I wasn't expecting and I liked a lot, which is Bronson is so sure he's right that he goes and uh, um, finagles a blood sample out of like the lab and, and purposely goes and plants it on uh, clothing in the guy's apartment. So mm-hmm. that way they can be like, oh, we found blood on your stuff. I guess you're the guy. And then they go to arrest him. Um I I didn't realize the movie was going to go the whole thing of him crossing the line legally to get the bad guy. Yeah. Which I really thought that was kind of cool. Like not as in like I hope that never happens in real life, but right. it's an interesting character decision of like, you know, he like he knows like he's absolutely certain this guy's doing it and which we as an audience know that he's doing it, so there's no tension there. But just how quickly he is to be like, "You know what? This guy's going to kill again." I, which I think me breaking the law is a less of offense than him killing anybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's also the 80s, and I feel like, particularly for this time, there was a big message about not only vengeance, but um, doing right, uh, whether it's legal or not, I guess is the best way of putting mm-hmm. it, um, by any means any means necessary in, in a sense of, um, you know, the legal system has failed, you know, they're not going to get this guy, so... You know, we should do it by whatever. Like vigilante yeah. type of, yeah, almost, right? So, so yeah, they get him arrested, and then um, this is where we get Jeffrey Lewis coming in as the the, the skeezy lawyer that actually kind of knows what he's doing. I mean, he's still he's still a dirtbag lawyer, but he knows his stuff, and he uh, he sees the way that um, that Stacy freaks out um, whenever they're like, we found blood on your clothes. He's like, that's not possible, because it's like, you know, I'm the naked killer. He doesn't say that. <laughs> He's like, you know, I'm the I'm, great. I'm like, I'm the dick machine. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, and so he takes a chair and slams it against the, like the door and breaks it. And the lawyer's like, you know, all right, calm down. Like, you know, if you're like, he basically, you could tell that he knows that guy did it, but yeah. he's like, so he starts leaning on. So the lawyer starts leaning on the younger cop to be like, well, you, you know, if, if you tell me that, you know, this evidence basically is telling him like, I know this evidence is planted. And if you, if you say it's not, I want to catch you for lying on the stand. And that sends the the younger cop going and kind of putting the pieces together. And again, wasn't expecting the movie to go there. And he actually figures it out like relatively logically. Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, and then the day of the court hearing, uh, you know, the star of the case, uh, McCann uh, confronts Bronson Kessler. 
And he's like, I know you did this. And he's like, well, why don't you talk to me before? And he's like, basically, like, because it's, you shouldn't, it's illegal. Shouldn't, yeah, you shouldn't be planting evidence. Yeah. And so then I thought for a second that it was going to be, he's going to be like, and? And like send him to right. go up and lie on the stand and make things worse. <laughs> but then it's this whole thing where like Bronson stands at like the edge of the court and he's like signaling for the lawyer to come over and like the judge is like, I'll allow it. It's like, I don't know if that's something they would be like, you know, is this important? You know, yeah. but then he fesses up to the judge that he planted evidence and they dropped all the charges and he immediately gets fired. Yeah. And then his emotional reaction is just him watching TV of it. And he's just like, eh, lost my job. Like, hey. <laughs> But I like it. Did you notice on the TV screen where they're asking questions and you hear him say, he's like, go bleep yourself. And it was funny that they censored him on the TV. Right. After everything else that was said, I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, that, uh, you know, Bronson has this. Yeah. And again, it, it falls into that whole, like, death wish, you know, uh <sighs> characterization at least or stereotype i guess is a better way of putting it you know like they, they had to have specific things that they you know needed to establish with his character you know that even though he's planting evidence that you know they want to show you that like well they they've already shown you they you know that he's technically even though he's wrong he's stopping somebody else from mm -hmm. mur being murdered he's it, it presenting it with a, a moral quandary if you will um which i don't think a lot of movies would do yeah, that's fair. And so so this becomes then, again, a part of the movie I wasn't expecting and I, and I enjoyed is that, you know, Stacy's now free mm -hmm. and he is he's, you know, out to get revenge because he was arrested for this. And so he's targeting um, Bronson's daughter now. And but well, he's actually out and about. And so Bronson, who is now a fired cop goes about his business of like following Stacy wherever he goes. And my favorite part of the movie is when they, whenever Stacy's in his car, his VW and Bronson pulls up beside him and he has this, like just this, like this little small smile on his face of like just sitting there in traffic, just like looks over, just has a smile of like, I see you like it's great. <laughs> and so it becomes like this, this very, I don't want to say slow cat and mouse, but Stacy knows that, you know, uh, Kessler's on his tail Kessler knows that Stacy's going to kill, try to kill again. He doesn't maybe know if it's his daughter or not, but he knows he's going to keep watching him. Yeah. And so then this is the point where um, I thought it was also cool that uh, Stacy actually got a step ahead of him and mm -hmm. set up like kind of a trap uh, involving like it looks like he's going to go kill a hooker in a hotel room, but it's basically he drugs her, knocks her out, and he sneaks away uh, under the guise of, again. He tells the 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 guy who was at the front desk who is that um. That old man that was at the desk is that is that blue from old school? Yeah. Okay. It was our boy blue. <laughs> uh, he tells him like, "Wake me up in three hours or whatever." So again, he's telling time frames. And he's like yeah. being specific. Uh, but then Bronson goes into that room, and he just looks down and sees the hooker like passed out in bed. And I put in my notes here. Um, Probably not the first time Bronson's been in a room with a non-responsive hooker. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, the look on his face is just like I've I've been here before. Like, you know, like. <laughs> well, I will say that uh, one of the things that they mentioned on uh, some of the special features of Ten to Midnight. Now, I'll mention this real quick. Uh, Screen Factory just re recently released a, a version of this on Blu-ray. It's the one that we watched. Um, yeah, gorgeous transfer too. Really, it looks really good. Yeah, there's some special features on there. One of the things that they do mention uh, on a couple occasions is that he was a real family man and really loved his wife. And so, you know, um, so good on Bronson. <laughs> 
I like I'm just painting this horrible picture, like you know. <laughs> and I'm defending his honor. No, I guess. It's, 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 I think that's right. So, um, and th- so this all leads to uh, this showdown or this like this this last segment where uh, Stacy is now in the the nurse's dorm of the four beds. Yeah, and he's trying to get to plan though was not a good plan. Uh, no, like he goes to deliver flowers. He's like, it's for Bronson's daughter. And they're like, and then she's like, I'm on the phone. And he's like, Telegram. It's like, tell him, tell him to go away. And it's like, you know, Candy Shark or whatever he says, you know, <laughs> Land Shark. Or Land Shark. Um, but then he he's at the door. He holds the flowers up to the door so they you know they can't see his face. And they burst the door. He's naked holding flowers. Oh, yeah. and he has this knife. Kills the one girl. Uh, and he goes through and just basically he kills all of them slowly but surely, trying to find her. Then there's the bit where Ola is in the shower and she's freaking out rightfully so. Yeah. But then like he looks off in the corner and sees a towel being pulled over the top of the shower. It's like, this is not the time to dry off. Just like, <laughs> just wait till you hear him stop talking and a door close. Yeah. Then maybe judge, judge if it's the right time to towel off. But yeah, he goes and he thinks it's, it's, it's um, Kessler's daughter and stabs Ola immediately and leaves her dead in the shower. But so she Kessler's been hiding and sees everything going down and the, and the good on the girls all trying to kind of throw him off his like off the trail. But then the movie does another thing that's actually kind of cool um, because I wasn't expecting this this level of production value or not production value, but of a uh, direction. Mm-hmm. Let me say she goes and hides under one of the seven beds that's in this, this common room. And so then Stacy's walking around blood covered, uh, which very reminiscent of American Psycho later. By the yeah. way, there's a lot. Of I actually imagery. feel like that actor also kind of looks a little Christian Bale. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, uh, and he's has the bloody knife and he's walking around naked. And then the the this movie did the thing I wasn't expecting it to do a, a third time. No music, like no sound, other than him walking through this this uh, dorm room, and it's very effective. Mm-hmm. And she's hiding under the bed trying to be quiet. And um, yeah, I thought that was actually really really cool that they they did the tension the right way by not pounding you in the head with music and just letting him stalk. Like, cause I mean, that's what's, that's what's happening in the movie mm-hmm. and you're supposed to feel uncomfortable like that. And, and, and go to on the director, which after realizing his pedigree of being an Oscar nominated director, I would understand that he would under, he would know how to put together a scene, but sometimes you never know, you know? Yeah. So, and so it ends in like, you know, she kind of actually holds her own somewhat. And, and then, it, you know, Bronson figures out what's going on, tries to get there and it ends up with this, like this foot chase, with him being 61 chasing this guy who is like fully naked, but at a sprint yeah. chasing his daughter down this, the street. And I'm like wondering, well, this has to end soon. Right. Cause I don't think Bronson can go forever running. Cause did you see how like they do the quick cuts of him running up the steps, but like they cut away real quick. <laughs> like that'd be like me in an action movie. It's like, you're only getting one take of me running fast. Cause otherwise I want to have my hands on my knees and I'm going to be breathing like an idiot. Like, you know, like, Ooh, it's okay. Cause give me one second. You know, it's like, Paul, we didn't have you run up the steps. You're walking up the steps. I'm like, I know, just give me a second. You can speed this up later. Right. That's where they get Kevin to be like your stunt double. <laughs> yeah. Like Kevin's doing like, the It would, it the would just cut, it would cut back to this, like, you know, in shape guy, it has a different body shape than me, but wearing the same like shirt, like the literal same shirt, just hanging off of him. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. Uh, but yeah, so then the movie ends like with the, sh- the showdown, like standoff with with uh, you know naked dude like uh, holding uh, Bronson's daughter, and eventually you know he's like kind of yelling, taunting uh, Bronson to be like you know it's like fine you know. I'll just tell people I'm sick in the head because it's advice he gets from the warrior earlier. Yeah. He's like, and I'll get away with this and then I'll get out and I'll be back basically, you know, like 
talking like Sideshow Bob or something there about like, you know. <laughs> I kind of thought the same thing. Yeah. But then Bronson, you know, he's holding the gun up and uh, the girl, you know, she she does something to, to get away from him, like hits him or something. And he's still taunting Bronson as the cops are right there. And uh, I I was not expecting the movie to end the way it did, where yeah. he just, just hauls off and just shoots him. I felt it was a very apropos ending for a Charles Bronson movie. Yeah, no, that's fair. Because <laughs> if you notice, like in the trailer that we played, you hear a gun sound three times. Yeah, it's the same shot from the movie three times because he only fires a gun once in the movie, and it's at the very end. Um, and it's that one that one shot yeah. and shoots the guy like you know almost point blank in the head kills him and then the, immediately though you see all the cops surrounding him and Bronson this is a, a distance a shot in the distance that if you're not paying attention his wrists are out in front of him to the cop like saying basically like you know cuff me or he's already cuffed and that's the end of your movie yeah here's a cop that recently got fired for playing evidence and then he and he shoots he the guy that he the tried guy. Yeah, yeah and it's like holy shit that's an ending that is a dark ending yeah. So I know we kind of went through the story plot, like point for point, you know, and there's the whole subplot of the younger cop kind of falling in love with, uh, you know, with Kessler's daughter and them going to a party and it was whatever. And it was, it was okay. There's you know? a very lame uh, joke where he thinks somebody's being murdered and, and it's just and two the, people having sex. And a guy has this really hairy ass. It's really disturbing. <laughs> um, it's, it's more disturbing than the naked guy running around the forest with a knife. Um, and then the moment he leaves, the guy's like, Meh, guess we got to get right back at it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, All right, then. That is kind of weird. Really. Yeah. He's like, yeah, oh, I just had a cop pull a gun on, you pull a gun on me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I liked this movie a great deal actually, uh, because I went in expecting nothing and it kept surprising me. And by the time I got done with it, I was like, I was like, that was actually pretty good. Like, I mean, it just, it feels like this would be a nice, like, I mean, I know the movie's called 10 to midnight, but if it was like a midnight showing someplace that would fit perfect. Yeah. You know, like, like we're talking about this playing at that cinema wasteland convention, that will be a fun watch with the crowd that's ready for this kind of film. You know? Yeah. I kind of think of it in the same terms of, uh, other movies of this time that I really enjoy that are, uh, <sighs> I, I wouldn't even say police procedurals, but like police thrillers. Uh, another one that I really, really love from this time frame is uh, Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams. Um, I would put this right along with it. Like, I would actually, I think that it would actually make a really great double feature as Nighthawks and Ten to Midnight because it's, it's very much, uh, you know, Nighthawks is Stallone trying to take down a uh, terrorist played by uh, Rutger Hauer. Um, and it, it, it has a, a, another one of those great endings as well. Um, and I think that like of, and admittedly, I haven't seen a lot of Bronson's non eighties work. We'll put it that way. Like, I haven't seen <laughs> like in his eighties. No. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've seen are his eighties action films, a lot of his canon stuff. Um, so it's, it's unfair for me to say this, but like, I would say that it's one of his better films. I mean, so I haven't seen a lot of his later stuff. Like, uh, if you ever go this era, I I mean, if if you go back and watch, like, um, like actually a good example, we've mentioned this briefly. Like he wasn't an episode of twilight zone called two. It's season three, episode one, Mm -hmm. season three, episode one called two. It's weird. He gives a very nuanced performance in that. And he plays very much against uh, type. Mm -hmm. It's a good performance. Um, Probably his one of his most iconic roles is Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, and he 
plays a character that pretty much doesn't talk for most of the movie. I mean, he has some lines, but if I remember right, but awesome. Just, just, uh, amazing, amazing film. So he's capable. It's just that you can tell if he's vested and interested, he's going to give you something. But if not, I, you know, it's like, it, it, he, he, he phones out more than probably Harrison Ford, but you get that same vibe of like, if he's honestly vested in the project, you're going to get good, yeah. the good performance. Um, but even in this, like, even though a lot of the scenes were like, you had to get from point A to point B, I, I even as much as he's like a hard edged son of a bitch in this, it's like, he still like him and he still has some good one liners every so often. And he, some of the most ridiculous dialogue, like I, I, this, the way he yells about the, the sex object with conviction. It's like, like that's gone from being the, the dick machine to the sex. I was object. trying to, the, you know, like when he, when he's throwing the dick machine around yelling at the guy, you know, good, good performance involving a dick machine. Um, yeah, that's that's like the X-rated version of Scooby Doo. You don't want to be like you know, like yeah. hey gang, let's go, go get in the dick machine and go solve some sexy crimes. Um, yeah, it just this it was it was an interesting movie. There, it's very sleazy, no doubt. Um, but they, again, I think that's indicative of that time in terms of like that kind of exploitation. Um, the way the movie kind of twists around in a way, it feels kind of like it feels like a um, a really badly early version of Seven in some ways where the killer is already knowing what he's going to do. And then it kind of ends up with this big showdown of basically like taunt, basically just taunting you to be like, you know, yeah. what are you going to do about it type of thing? And it ends very similar, you know? And I mean, not with uh, Kevin Spacey naked. That's, that would be, I don't want to think about that, but you know, there, there's elements here that work for me that I would have no problem watching this again. And I'd have no problem recommending it. Uh, and considering some of the kind of stuff we've watched so far, like I, I entered the ninja was a blast, um, mm. but it's kind of a ridiculous movie. This movie's also ridiculous too, but it's, it's grounded enough. And like that cop, I don't know how it's not ground. It's not the right word. Um, it, what could happen to this movie as improbable as it is could still potentially happen. Why I don't think enter the ninja could happen. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> the, there is, you know, uh, particularly at this time as well, there was the Ted Bundy killings yes. going on. Uh, well, I, that happened in late seventies, but like th that type of serial killer, not a, a supernatural slasher or a Jason Voorhees type slasher wasn't really prevalent yet. So like it was a much more realistic <laughs> version of that type of slasher well they even kind of spoke to a little bit about the ted bundy thing in the sense there's two girls that were picking him out of like in the interrogation room that he harassed at the movie theater yeah like the one was like he's a creep and the one girl the entire time was like i don't know he's yeah and then the, in the meantime like they're interrogating him for possibly killing somebody and she's yeah. like nah, you know and then he they ask him it's like well what about the two girls in the theater he's like I'm not interested in that, but it's almost like, oh, and they just like kind of push, push him out of the way. Um, yeah, this is this is a, I don't want to say fun movie. It's it's an outrageous movie, and it would be a fun movie to watch with the right crowd of people. Yeah, like as long as you know what you're getting into, there's a lot of fun to be had with this. But it, if not, it's going to be a very off-putting film. So, all right, yeah. yeah. I don't even know if I'd say it's off-putting, but like... Well, I mean, with just the nudity and the content, and then, like, even when he's, like, crank-calling the people and being sexual, he says some really disgusting things in a terrible accent, but yeah. he says some very <laughs> disgusting things. I guess when you say off-putting, I wasn't taking those things into consideration. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, do you have any other uh, thoughts about the film? No, no, um, I would just say that, like, uh, you know, I stand by 
you know, my assessment that admittedly, while I haven't seen uh, much of his earlier works, um, uh, of his canon era films, I definitely think it's his best. So, um, yeah, if, if you're... If you're somebody who uh, hasn't seen the movie, I would highly recommend it. And if you like seeing, um, if you if you're somebody who likes physical media, I would highly recommend the Scream Factory disc because it's a great transfer and there's some cool extra features on it. And I like that. Um, I don't know if you chose to flip the artwork around to show the original yeah. artwork. Um, I, the art, this, the, it is it isn't a Drew Struzan level poster, but it's still pretty awesome. So I like the the imagery. Uh, so all right, we'll just get through our, our um, what I call on the blog our parting cannon shots. We'll we'll call it that. All right. Uh, is this better or worse than the Apple? It's absolutely better than the Apple. Yeah, by a I long mean, shot. Hands down, there's yeah. no competition there. Yeah. Um, weirdly sexual though, like the Apple at times. You know, yeah. no no bim marks though. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, the Monocle Index. I'm, like, since he, they didn't really like. Though it's a very monochrome thing to be like, we have a name for a film, but not a film. Yeah. So I'll give it that. Uh, I'll also give it like the bedrooms were weird. <laughs> I just, <laughs> maybe not his choice, but it feels like something where it'd be like, no, 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 no. It doesn't that's, matter. That's just, how American yeah. bedrooms are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it. Um, I'm gonna give it a like a twenty percent because the rest of it felt pretty much you know like they didn't try to fit a weird music fat in they didn't try yeah. to fit in like oh he's a naked killer on rollerblades or whatever like they didn't try to you know like he's also a yo-yo master like they didn't try to fit in like something else that didn't make sense he's a naked killer who just can't stop dancing yeah it's like, <laughs> yeah um, so because I feel like there's always a time it's like we got to fit another fat in here they'd be like hey people might be here for the nudity but they want to stay for the devil stick or whatever yeah. it is like they'd be doing you know so i mean you know honestly for as much as we talk about canon and joke about it like it's both the compliment but also uh a, a negative i guess in a way that like i feel like there's less of uh uh, Menachem Golan's like fingerprints on this film. Yeah, um, and I think that's why it's better. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so. It, you know, yeah, I would say you know a twenty-five percent uh, is probably about where I'd fall on the Menachem index. So. Yeah, and then well, I mean, there's also I, this is not his thing, but did you? There were some interesting and weird edits in the film too, yeah. like the beginning when the killer was getting ready, like it was like, he's like, Oh, I'm, you know, getting my clothes on. Then immediately it's like, I have my jacket on already. And it was like, you get it. It's a nice shortcut, I guess. But yeah. then even later when he was trying to open, uh, the one little nightstand to get the, um, the diary out, like that was some weird edits there too. Like I, they weren't unwelcome, but it was odd. So yeah. it always reminded me that this isn't, this isn't like, you know, um, I don't know, Paramount releasing this film. So, all right. Uh, would I recommend this film to anybody, to anyone, Absolutely. Uh, but again, know what you're getting into. That's all because there, I don't think this would be, I don't think this film's for everybody, but if you have a passing interest, I think there's a, enough here that you would find interest and enjoyment out of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like you brought up the comparison to seven. Like that's not a movie that I would recommend to everybody as well. So like, yeah, I mean, but and, I feel like seven who's is into is, seven. Yeah, and seven's way like, up there. Like, like, yeah. yeah, seven is an amazing film that like yeah, you I know, love that rewards multiple viewings. You know, much tighter writing than this, yeah. but still, there there's some elements in this where it's like you got the killer that thinks he has the perfect plan and can get away with it, and even though the point of seven is a little different, but yeah, he was getting away with it for enough enough time. They had this big master plan. 
And you had the two cops, the old one and the young one, the one that's been hardened by the world and the other one that sees things a little different, you know. There are some really big inter- – I mean, there is there is a dick machine in Seven, but it's different. Yes, a horrifyingly <laughs> way, but yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would recommend this movie. Uh, I would just, you know, keep in mind who I'm recommending it to. I'm not going to recommend it to my mother-in-law, but, like, you know uh, – people that i'm friends with absolutely yeah so all right that's gonna do it for our actually you know what uh, just real quick I, I meant to make the point of this so he got so the book out. I, I got the the, the hollywood a go-go by andrew yule true story of the canon film empire this has nothing to do with 10 to midnight but this is around the time the film came out i just want to read here they're talking about how uh with films that there's ways to kind of write off like profits and losses within like a like a three-year turnaround where it looks like the first two years it makes a profit but then in the third year it doesn't but somehow overall they say they get like a net there's there's a lot of business stuff here i don't understand however this was written in 87 before canon absolutely collapsed right so this guy wrote um an overall loss therefore three million and this isn't talking about his uh formula uh, but only emerging in year three where the delayed cost recognition bill comes in for a nine million after paper profits, blah, 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 blah. So he's saying basically on paper, you can make a lot of films look profitable until the third year and then you, you, you'll pay the piper. He said, so a film that is still born in the marketplace can still by this method be shown to make a profit in years one and even two. The only absolute foolproof way of getting over this troublesome crunch years, meaning the third year would to be always having more first year products entering distribution every single year that passed. So he was making the comment is like, he goes on to say, so suppose that a company made just one single film in, in year one, uh, which it overestimated revenues. They would thereby show a profit in year one, possibly be in trouble by year two and certainly by year three. Okay. In year two, that company had better make sure they have at least two new films ready for release and overestimate the revenues in the same way. So he's basically saying, Sure, you can fudge the numbers as long as you have more movies coming out each year. And he's he's basically like saying, I wonder what Canon was doing trying to make themselves look profitable. Yeah. And this is written in 87, and he knows what happened. But this is talking about 83, around the time that uh, 10 to Midnight came out, where it's like they keep talking about how these <clears throat> movies are profitable like out, right out the gate. But they have to keep making more to show that. And so right. he's, he's hinting at a, at a problem that eventually engulfs the company. So interesting that he like, you know, was able to kind of suss that out and kind of like, it's not something he guessed at, but it's like, that was just kind of like, if this is how they're doing it, then the only reasonable thing to do would be to make more movies, but nobody can make like more and more movies each year. And it's like, yeah. So (laughs) you underestimate Canon. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry to bring that at the very end, but I wanted to share some insight from 83 about what was going on at the time. So. All right, it's going to do it for 10 to midnight. It's going to do it for this installment of year, the year of Canon. Um, you know, before we're out the door here, uh, we'll, we'll uh, pimp some things. That's what we do. Um, all right, so we'll start with Steve. What 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 do you got going on? Uh, you can find me at the SaturdayNightSlasher.com. You can find me on Instagram under the Saturday Saturday Night Slasher, and on Twitter under the Saturday Saturday Slasher. Uh, we got conventions coming up. Uh, first is going to be Retro Invasion Weekend in Westlake, Ohio, May 31st through June 2nd. Uh, followed a month later, uh, June 29th through June 30th at Dark X-Fest in Hudson, Ohio. So come out, see us, uh, talk to us, maybe purchase a comic or two, um, and say hello. 
Yeah. All right. So um, you can find us at Evasion of the Podcast. Uh, we have the blog where there will be another Canon film showing up, um, you know, and eventually here before we do the next uh, podcast episode of the Year of the Canon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. It's Invasion of the Podcast. You can tell us uh, your favorite Bronson movies, your favorite uh, moments in 10 to midnight. I don't know. Your favorite choice language. Yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Your favorite uh, euphemism for the dick machine. <laughs> yeah. You have cleaner versions of that. Like, you know, the, <laughs> the penis contraption. I don't know. Um, Something less uh, yeah. offensive than so, dick, dick machine. machine. Yeah. So uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your uh, podcast, rate and review us. That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> here's a weird pivot. So I apologize in advance, Jeff, because we've been using the words dick machine over and over again. Uh, so uh, a friend of the show, Jeff Ritchie, uh, he is doing this awesome uh, thing on uh, uh, May 9th at the Bob Stop in Cleveland called A Lad Insane. It is going to be a whole night about David Bowie. There's going to be cover bands. There's going to be art from Jeff and other people. I will be there in some capacity, um, you know, not not dragging down the quality of the show by saying foul things. Uh, tickets are $10. The show starts at 7 that day. Uh, go buy tickets. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be there as just a patronizing guest. Yeah. Uh, so I will be bringing down uh, the place, but uh, <laughs> that's just by my presence. Um, so yeah, 10 bucks. I bought tickets for me and my wife. It's going to be a great show. Yeah. So next week, um, to be determined, we have some, maybe some stuff working, uh, cooking. We got some things cooking and I'll just say that, uh, in the last couple of minutes I noticed on my phone, I had a message. So it looks like what we have planned for next week is probably going to be a go. So, okay. We'll post that on the Facebook whenever like we yeah. get the details worked out. So yeah, uh, that's going to do it for us for this version, this, this edition of the year of the Canon. Uh, have a good week. Uh, we'll see you next week with a, a, a new invasion of the podcast show. And in the meantime, I don't know. Um, I just, you know, don't go running naked through the woods with a knife. It's probably not a good way. I mean, nothing good ever comes out of running, running naked with a knife through the woods. Correct. Look at me.